Mr. James. Mr. James. <laughs> That's King James to you. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 8th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Neil. How's how you, it going? How you doing this morning? You know, it's it's tough. Yeah. It's been a tough, a tough morning after a tough night. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about about the uh, the disaster uh, that happened in baseball last night <laughs> later, but really a three night multi night disaster. Yeah, no, it's been out. spread over multiple nights. On today's show, we'll be joined by Nate Silver to unveil Raptor, our new metric for the 2019-2020 NBA season. We'll discuss the conflict between China and the NBA with Chris Herring, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA preseason is officially underway. We've put out forecasts of the NBA season since 2015, relying on player ratings from ESPN and BasketballReference.com. But this year, we're doing something different. 538 has created its own player rating metric, and that will power this season's forecast, the new version of which will be live on our site on Thursday. Here to discuss how we're changing how we assess the NBA with this new metric called Raptor is 538 Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hi, Nate. Hey, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you doing? I'm tired. The thing about these model talk segments is that they always come when I've been like working really hard. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of tend to not procrastinate, but like, you know, the work builds over the course of whatever model you're putting out. And so therefore, I'm always really tired and kind of Giddy and or grumpy. That, so. see, I feel like that's actually the perfect time to have you on okay, the show. Probably. It's good for podcasts. <laughs> Giddy Nate is really fun. Giddy and grumpy is our default state anyway. That is actually true, too. Well, we love having you on the show because we love talking to you, of course, but it's almost always an excuse to bring out our favorite segment. You guys you guys ready? Let's do it. Ready? Okay. This, this is Model Talk. talk. <laughs> that was good. That was a good one. Yeah, I feel like I'm Jeff Jeff reduces our model talk Jeff does bring efficiency down. rating. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, Nate, our previous NBA model had plenty of success. It predicted the Raptors winning the championship last year when few other outlets gave them much of a chance. Why change it? What about the old model wasn't performing well? I'm not sure if it's a matter of it not performing well, but they're basically like kind of three ob- objectives here, right? One of two of which are kind of basketball-related objectives, and a third of which is more kind of a pragmatic objective for the site and 538. So the basketball-related initiatives are, you know, number one, the current stats that we have been using in our projections really do not take advantage of modern player data, meaning they don't use much play-by-play data and they don't really use any player tracking data, which has now been available for six years. Just having a publicly available stat that is kind of -of state-of-the-art we think is valuable for the basketball community. And that's what Raptor is. Number two, um, we also think the publicly available metrics don't really reflect how players are valued by the NBA, which could be great if we thought it was always getting all these things right. Um, And, you know, these stats did like the Toronto Raptors a lot last year. The stat is kind of named in honor of the Raptors. Um, What does it stand for again? It stands for robust. (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. It's like trying to name all the Democratic presidential candidates. (laughs) Uh, robust algorithm using player tracking and on-off ratings. Whoa, nice. can't believe there are two R's in there and no regression. Amazing. I did. Pretty amazing, yeah. <laughs> you know, there is an algorithm, though. You need that for the A. But uh, anyway, but we think that, like, you know, if you look at 
BPM or PER or things like that, right? They tend to value like centers and power forwards more than the league does, right? They don't really measure defense all that well. They don't seem to care that much about um, floor spacing and and motion offense and and shot creation, all these things that the league actually values and that fans actually value. And we think if you actually account for more of this data and kind of calibrate it to the modern NBA, then you actually have a rating that's quite reflective in the aggregate of how players are valued. Not to say there aren't some players that we might have disputes over, which we may be right or wrong about, but that seems like it's it's pretty important potentially. Um, and by the way, one reason why this is like like a high leverage issue this year is because a lot of players change teams, right? The way that most of these systems work and the way that Raptor more or less works is that you're essentially have a finite amount of credit for any particular team. Um, so based on their point differential, in Raptor's case, it's kind of point differential adjusted for junk time minutes, basically. But so therefore, let's say that you have a system that underrates Kawhi Leonard. That system kind of by definition will probably overrate Danny Green or Kyle Lowry or another player on the Raptors, right? So as long as the teams stay together, it doesn't matter that much. But if, for example, Kawhi Leonard were to depart the Raptors and the fact that we think he's been significantly underrated by Raptor would have more of an effect. It would mean you would underrate the Clippers, right? And so therefore, just having a stat that kind of reflects kind of what teams are doing, you don't have to fudge it by like using a different replacement level for centers or something like that. The third objective is like, it's a little weird for the site when we have these projections that we call Carmela projections, but they're kind of fueled by someone else's statistic. Because honestly, having done both parts now, the descriptive part is actually a lot more work than the predictive part, right? You can plug, you know, any number into an algorithm and adjust a little bit for age and do some clever things, right? And come up with a decent prediction, which is kind of what Carmelo did. But if we have a radically different view on how players are, are what players are worth, then we're kind of wind up like defending, defending other people's systems that we didn't create ourselves. And that having looked at this for a number of years, I mean, Neil and I have talked for years about like, critiques we would have of, of BPM or RPM or things like that. And so, you know, it's also kind of having created Draymond, which was measuring scoring defense based on when you're the nearest defender. It actually kind of left Carmelo in a slightly weird place where you're adjusting for some things, but not others. You're probably actually doing some some double counting. Kind of made sense once we started down the path of like actually delving into player tracking data to go to go all the way and essentially build our own stat. So what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen while working through the modeling? I mean, the main shifts are really, they're kind of three related things in terms of the types of players that it likes. Number one is that relative to previous stats, it likes wings and point guards more than other previous generation, next generation stats did, if that makes sense, right? Next is it kind of values shot creation. So one simple thing that I think all NBA sets should do is they should account for like, are your field goals assisted or are they shots that you created yourself? Because you're giving a lot of credit to point guards and other players who generate assists. You should probably be taking some credit away from players who rely heavily on assisted field goals, especially high percentage assisted field goals. So dunks, layups, corner threes, etc. Number three is we do think we have a considerably more precise way to measure defense in Raptor. But, you know, really, traditionally, the only defensive stats you had to work with were basically steals, blocks, defensive rebounds, and 
fouls committed. And that's it, really, right? And so, so just having other things to look at, you know, obviously knowing who the nearest defender was on every shot. Like I said, very helpful for two-point attempts, not as helpful for three-point attempts, but like that, that moves the ball quite a bit. We actually look and try to figure out who the player you're defending is based on your position, right? So if you're like, so Damian Lillard is a player who, who Raptor likes a lot for many reasons, but opposing point guards tend to score a lot of points um, when they're on the floor, and Damian, Damian Lillard is also on the floor, right? And so that's a way to like adjust for that, right? Looking at opponent statistics um, in a somewhat crude but still useful way, right? There's more exotic stuff for, for perimeter defenders, looking at actually how many miles they travel over the course of a game is a indicator of defensive activity. We are, by the way, as part of this, we are working with publicly available data. And we have talked with folks in the league, literally in the NBA, about like, okay, here is stuff that would be really helpful for fans based on our spending a lot of time on this, and that may be published in the future. So I think probably some things will be swapped out, especially on defense, and replaced with better measures of like defensive activity in the future. But this does, I think, move the ball forward a, a fair bit. And the things like def- uh, distance traveled, those are examples of the types of stats that you couldn't have put in a regression or even, you know, before that, like PER, which I think was just John Hollinger trying to kind of reason out the the weights that the, all the different box score events should have, like, you know, this shot is worth two points and, you know, but then we back out some of the credit, but, you know, it's all very, like, intuited. It's not based on um, a regression or anything. And then BPM is based on a regression between box score stats and plus minus, but still has, like, a lot of weird kind of effects that are at cross purposes with each other it's kind of picking up associations but they're not always causal whereas this uh you were trying to be on causality right and we try to like so um and there are various things that we're doing right so this is going to be pretty technical that's Um, why we're here at model we're here at model (laughs) talk so what what bpm did is it looked at a 14-year data set of rapm so basically plus minus just based on how many points do I contribute when my team's on the floor. And the problem with that is that it's extremely noisy. Like over 14 years, it's kind of great. It captures all types of tangible and intangible contributions. For one player over one year or two years, it, it's extremely noisy to the point where if you looked at like kind of a one-year leaderboard of RAPM, you'd be like, this has not very much correlation with what I thought were actually the good players in the NBA. Um, so what we're doing is like basically saying, okay, if we look at all players, in our case, over six years, because there's six years of player tracking data, then we can use that to calibrate um, stats that are less noisy and that converge a lot more quickly. And therefore, we can approximate what we think it would be in the long run if you didn't have all this noise. But, you know, but there are lots of issues when fitting a model like this. One thing being that, like, events that are mostly attributable to luck will affect your on-off rating, right? Where if, for example, my opponent um, who is not normally a good shooter, takes a bunch of threes and makes them, right? That will affect my on-off rating, even though I might have defended the position well. So one thing we did is we actually looked at not just the six-year data set, but also three-year data sets. We should, by the way, give credit to a fellow named Ryan Davis. It's a site called nbashotcharts.com that has RAPM measurements. He also was very helpful in producing some customized stuff for us. So thank you to Ryan. So we also looked at how well predictions work out of sample. There are some variables that do a good job of predicting RAPM in sample, but are luck-driven, and therefore they didn't predict things out of sample. And so, therefore, What are some removed. examples of those? The main one is actually like is three-point defense, is that, um, again, it's really bad for your team 
when your opponent makes a bunch of threes. However, that doesn't really reflect player skill all that much for a couple of reasons. One is that there's a fair amount of luck in how your opponent makes or fails to make three-pointers. And two is that, like, for some reason, like, the way that the NBA categorizes nearest defender, like, doesn't quite seem to work that well in all cases for three-pointers, you know. Oftentimes, the defender who's most relevant is a defender that's kind of in line between the shooter and the basket. It also classifies any shot over six feet as being wide open when sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true, actually, right? And so for various reasons, like, it seems to work pretty well for shots in the post, but not that well for three-pointers. And so kind of that, that emerges empirically once you look at the out-of-sample data. I remember that being a thing with uh, Kawhi Leonard one year where his real plus minus, which is our APM like you're talking about, Nate, but like married to a BPM type of uh, box score metric also. So trying to kind of fuse the noisy plus minus data to something more stable, but perhaps less illuminating like box score data and then hope that in combination you, you kind of get the best of all worlds. But one year Kawhi Leonard's defensive RPM just fell off the planet and nobody could really figure out why. And people dug into, I think somebody at Nylon Calculus eventually was like, actually just the opponents have hit a lot of threes while he was on the court, but that's not necessarily telling about him as a defender. Yeah, and again, these on-off stats are actually very noisy. So I think kind of for a long time, the perception among kind of NBA analytics geeks has been that like, oh, these on-off stats are the holy grail. And if you had an infinite amount of data where an infinite amount of players kind of uh, had an infinite number of possessions against all their combinations of lineup, it might be. But in in any practical NBA context, like if you can't even get stable estimates over a year and the NBA is a league where actually stats stabilize quite quickly then, you know, that's a big problem, especially for a projection system where, like, it's really relevant to us if De'Aaron Fox improves a lot from year one to year two. We don't want some mush of a regression because for young players, if you make that leap, you almost always sustain most or all of it, right? Um, So we need that kind of precision and granularity. So you mentioned a couple of players that Raptor thinks highly of. Are there players that Raptor thinks a lot more of than conventional wisdom or players that Raptor hates compared to conventional Well, wisdom. Neil is working on, on some of this. I think like there are a lot of players that I would say Raptor is higher on than other advanced stats, but brings it more in line with conventional wisdom. That's a fairly common pattern. Like it's not Kawhi like, Leonard is a Kawhi Leonard, example. right? We think Kawhi Leonard under Raptor is one of the top, you know, seven or eight players in the NBA and, and you know, something like that, right? And that's, I think, in line if not a little low relative to conventional perceptions. Yeah, wasn't he number one in the uh, NBA rank uh, ratings or, or yeah, I think it's partly two like or the, something like that? Partly the, you know, the halo effect of winning a championship, right? But, you know, under the old systems, he was like the 25th best player in the NBA. Yeah. Well, I think Russell Westbrook takes a little bit yeah. of a hit compared with advanced metrics uh, because even in something like RPM, but especially BPM, you'll see Westbrook rated as a very good defender, which sort of flies in the face of his reputation around the league and the eye test. And some of it comes down to what you were talking about earlier, Nate, the the kind of lack of defensive statistics and, and the ones that they do have. He tends to do really well in, in the box score, like steals, especially defensive rebounds. Uh, and one of the things that Raptor does is it actually tries to parse out 
how many of those rebounds could have been rebounded by any of your teammates, and they just sort of decided to let you get it, which is great for averaging a triple-double so, per game, so, yeah. but maybe so for, not helpful for, to the for team. For Westbrook, there is a bit of stat stuffing, right? Where the rebounds, he gets to be less valuable. Steals are quite valuable, but like it's probably equally, if not more important, to merely defend shots is valuable. By the way, a hidden stat that's kind of hiding in plain sight is offensive fouls drawn. Those are worth as much, if not more, than steals. Those are why guys like Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry yeah. generates a, like an offensive foul a game, which is worth actually quite a bit. The other guy that like Raptor thinks is a little overrated is a guy named LeBron James. What about LeBron would be rated lower in Raptor? The issue is that LeBron James is a mediocre to less than mediocre regular season defender. He is someone who also does get like a lot of blocks and steals. But if you look at how activity metrics, right, how many possessions is he defending, not that many. And if you look at how his teams do on defense, not that good, right? So it thinks LeBron is roughly as good on offense as people think. But it thinks that his defense, especially in the regular season, a mild liability, which I think actually tracks with the conventional wisdom in the NBA. And in the postseason, it's better. He's, we actually have an adjustment for playoffs for regular season. He is, I think, the single player who has the biggest yep. favorable adjustment upward in the playoffs. But like LeBron is a kind of one-and-a-half-way player at this point, right? Great on both ends of the ball, the playoffs. Great on offense, always. But, you know, including costing layers, like there's a playoffs last year, his regular season defenses have, defense has not been... Very good. And for some reason, people like don't want to do like the, the math, right? They want to kind of look at the counting stats. And, you know, I'm usually kind of a LeBron stand. So, but if you go deeper and dig not just to the counting stats, then on defense, LeBron is not the player that he once was. And by the way, you know, one nice thing about Raptors, you often see these kind of nice like aging curves that you don't necessarily get with traditional stats, partly because like if you're not measuring defense well, what a lot of older players tend to do is they hide decline on defense and they hide decline by kind of taking possessions off. Like if you look at this, what we used to call Draymond, the stats about how many possessions you defend. And it turns out by the way that actually just how many possessions you defend is probably more important than your opponent's field goal rate, right? A lot of league superstars rate low on some of the number of possessions defended, which may be very rational. It might make sense if you're LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard to rest on defense or James Harden, certainly. Right. But it does have an impact on your team. And when those guys do defend possessions, they can often be very effective, right? Like LeBron James locked in is still at, at least an above average defender, if not a very good defender. I think um, it's so funny we could say the same things about Kobe Bryant down the stretch of his career. I think that's just a phenomenon for, yeah, like every star, offensive star, especially these kind of wing stars that they're very ball dominant and it takes a lot of energy to have the offense run through you almost or practically every possession and so it's too much ask once you hit your 30s i think to have you also turn it around and and defend uh, maximum effort at the other end neil looked at player projections and two of the three players who had their projection improved the most were paul george and Kawhi leonard they are both new players in the Clippers, so the Clippers are going to get a big boost in our projections whenever they come out. I don't know if it'll make them the NBA title favorite. It might, because those are big differences. Yeah, and it, it should certainly boost them more 
uh, we keep talking about things being more in, in line with the conventional wisdom. But under the old system, which is still on the site, we had the Clippers kind of low. I mean, only a 6% chance of, of winning the title behind the Warriors, Bucks, Lakers, Rockets, and Sixers. So I think maybe, yeah, we would see teams like the Sixers and Rockets maybe drop off, you know, based I mean, on things loves, like Simmons and Westbrook. It loves Harden so much. It doesn't look Westbrook. So the Rockets might be, I don't know, yeah. somewhat neutral. Um, and the Clippers the Sixers, should rise, I would it, think. I mean, it loves... Embiid. Embiid. It might, I think it's something like this. I think it's going to mainly be mainly be the uh, I'm predicting dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> predicting a prediction. I think the Clippers will rise maybe to the top, but at least they'll rise some. It might hurt the Lakers a little bit because of that LeBron projection. Yeah, the regular season versus postseason effect also is interesting for some of these players. Yeah. Like how it will matter to the to the projection of wins over unders. You know, that's all based on the regular season. Uh, my big question is, what will Raptor think of the Raptors? Because <laughs> that's an interesting team. Also, you mentioned the idea of this zero-sum situation with Kawhi where, you know, if you're not giving Kawhi enough credit, you're giving too much credit to the other guys on that team. But I think it's fair to say that the the media and the conventional wisdom didn't give the the supporting cast enough credit at times last year, which fed into that the the fact that the Raptors were seen as having no chance of winning that series. Obviously, the Warriors' injuries helped them a lot in that one. But you yourself, Nate, tweeted that you know there shouldn't be an asterisk on it because the Raptors were a better all around team than people were kind of giving them credit for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think Kyle Lowry has been a chronically underrated new contract NBA player but they did lose danny green who had a who had a very good year and is a very good i'd say a good player who had a very good year right so he might have been due for, for, for some mean reversion anyway the records were very good when he was on the court not as good when he was off it that's a little scary for them it is not enamored with pascal siakam and he's an example of one of those players that you talked about giving credit to the shot creators and the ball handlers that kind of set yeah. people up for shots. He's more of one of the big men that uh, when we looked at who falls off the most power forwards and centers are, you know, kind of dinged as a, as a general rule under Raptor compared with things like RPM. Uh, and Siakam might be one of the poster children for that, along with like Clint Capella and, and guys like that, where, you know, they're working off maybe somebody else creating the shot for them and getting to look good with efficiency numbers but you know how much of that can kind of hold up under different conditions i mean siakam has some fun like throwback comparables like uh george gervin tayshawn prince larry nance right <laughs> those alex, are fun <laughs> alex english sam perkins charles smith so oftentimes kind of modern players get more modern comparables because styles have changed right but he's a little bit more of a kind of throwback ish big we also by the way have Retrofitted Raptor ratings for past. Go back to 1974, which is kind of amazing. That's catnip for somebody like me, at least, to kind of go back. So I've dug into um, all those historic Raptors. Like Michael Jordan looks, I think, better than maybe some of the younger fans Mm -hmm. and the more recent metrics are giving him credit for relative to somebody like LeBron. So, yeah, if you think about the things that Raptor values, then all those things are in line with Michael Jordan. Probably (laughs) no player in NBA history created more shots on his own than Michael Jordan, and it likes that, right? It likes wings uh, relative to bigs, and it likes players who are good on defense. Now, there could have been a LeBron issue where maybe MJ was also taking some positions off on defense. However, his teams were more consistently good defensively. And like there are little things about you discover, like, you know, Michael Jordan generate a lot of offensive rebounds. It's often hard for players who are involved 
in the offense to generate a lot of offensive rebounds, but he he did that. So I don't know. I think indications are that he was a very good player. I mean, there's some things like like Raptor thinks that <laughs> really like, going wait, on wait, a wait, wait. Yeah. Indications are that Michael Jordan was a good player, huh. but I think huh. <laughs> I, I think it's changed my view. I now am back to believing that Michael Jordan He's was better, better than LeBron James. Okay, wow. at, at his peak. Yeah, yeah, because Raptors are very bullish on Jordan relative to conventional wisdom and a little bearish on on LeBron. Although peak LeBron obviously rates kind of very highly, and we're looking at a six-year sample, which is kind of the beginning of the merely terrific phase of LeBron's career, as opposed to like the best seasons of all time for a non-Jordan player phase. You know, I mean, Raptor does think that probably he's the second best player of all time. It really likes um, like John Stockton. If you go back and look at John Stockton's statistics. They're kind of amazing how many assists he generated, how many steals he generated, how efficient a scorer he was, right? You know, shot a fair number of three-pointers back when the league wasn't doing that as much. I mean, I don't know. I think he's been a historically underappreciated player. So, like, and the paradigm for, like, what player from the past does Raptor dislike the most relative to conventional wisdom is probably, like, Patrick Ewing. Oh, Um, interesting. Yeah. Ewing theory for real on this. You know, a pick-and-roll big is kind of not quite the type of player that Raptor likes. I was surprised it also doesn't really care that much for Dennis Rodman in the Bulls era. Rodman being like famously one of the most polarizing, I think, statistical players of all time, one of the most unique ones. So there are a couple of things here. I don't know what Dennis Rodman would have looked like given fully available Raptor data, right? In general, rebounds are complicated. Mm. If you don't have more granular data, then what happens is that rebounds look like they're not that valuable. Because in general, players that generate a lot of rebounds do other things that are not desirable, both on offense and defense. If you can measure those other things and say, okay, well, a guy like Blake Griffin or Jokic is actually generating rebounds and actually defending well, then that could be really valuable. So there's a chance that like having better data would have made Raptor love Dennis Rodman. But if you're just making the case based on rebounds alone, then that can be kind of a mixed bag. And I think that point that you just made about uh, players... Like other stats in the past sort of saying, okay, well, this particular number was associated with players that tend to not be valuable. Being confused with this number is not valuable is one of the big, I think, improvements that Raptor makes specifically. Especially especially in offense where I think we really kind of have cracked most of the offensive nut. Well, it'll be so interesting to see how our forecasts powered by Raptor do this year. I think so we'll have to talk about them next week. I, we're gonna, yeah. I think we'll be talking about them a lot throughout the season. I'm super excited to get this metric out into the world. Thank you so much for joining us, Nate. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Let's pause for a word from this week's sponsor, ButcherBox. You've heard me talk about ButcherBox for months. If you haven't taken advantage of its amazing offers, here's a reminder of what you're missing. Every month, ButcherBox delivers humanely raised 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken heritage breed pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box with all of your favorite cuts. And with free shipping, ButcherBox makes getting high-quality meat with no added hormones or antibiotics easier than ever. In addition to all the great meat you get, ButcherBox is knocking $20 off your first box and throwing in two pounds of free ground beef in every box for the life of your subscription when you sign up at butcherbox.com slash takedown. Don't miss out on this amazing offer. Make sure to sign up at butcherbox.com slash takedown. Fight for freedom. Stand with Hong Kong. 
A message relayed in a tweet by Rockets general manager Daryl Morey has plunged the NBA into a geopolitical scandal. The now-removed tweet referenced the pro-democracy protest movement that has overtaken Hong Kong over the past several months. This is far from the first time that the NBA has wandered into politics. LeBron James has actively sparred with Fox News and spoken out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Warriors coach Steve Kerr has voiced his desire for gun control legislation. And Spurs coach Greg Popovich has openly criticized President Trump. In 2013, center Jason Collins became the first openly gay active player in any of the four men's major sports. And in 2014, in the wake of the death of Eric Garner in police custody, many players sported T-shirts that read, I can't breathe, during pregame warm-ups. More recently, center Enes Kanter, a native of Turkey, received death threats for criticizing Turkish President Erdogan. In each of these instances, the NBA and its commissioner, Adam Silver, have expressed their support and even pride in having what the New York Times Magazine called the most outwardly politically progressive American sports league. But this weekend, we saw a different response from NBA officials and even from the players in response to Morey's pro-Hong Kong tweet. To unpack why the NBA is taking a different approach to this latest political moment, we're joined by 538 senior sports writer Chris Herring. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. How are you? Good to be back in a podcast together. <laughs> I know. It's been lab. a while. Yeah. It's like <laughs> old times in here. <laughs> well, Chris, let's start this off by explaining what happened immediately after the tweet. Where did we first see backlash? I didn't notice anything about it until I saw Tillman Fertitta, who is now you know, the billionaire and the owner of the Rockets. He tweeted and embedded Daryl Morey's tweet in his own saying, this does not represent the Rockets. This, you know, Morey's tweet does not represent the Rockets and he doesn't speak for us. When you kind of take into greater account what all this means, Chinese politics are a massive deal now in the NBA. And I think the reason is, Chinese money and and basically the exposure of the NBA in China is a huge deal for the NBA because think about it this way. And I saw this stat in a story. China has 500 million people that watched at least one NBA game last year, which is, you know, when you think about that as more people than we have in this country total. Um, and so it's a growing market it is the most popular sport over there in China. So that's why it matters. And not to mention the fact that the Rockets are easily the most the most supported team in China, mostly because of Yao Ming being from there. And not to mention Jeremy Lin also playing for the Rockets as well and a couple other players too. So when you kind of factor in all those different facets, that's what makes this so interesting is that the Chinese government, definitely the Chinese Basketball Association, wanted an immediate uh, removal from you know the Rockets to kind of back away from that statement for – uh, Commissioner Silver and the NBA to back away from that statement, which is exactly what happened, but still raised the question of whether that was enough and, it, you know, raised the question of like, what exactly do these different groups want? All of it is kind of plagued and kind of complicated with all these different issues about our free speech here and the difference between that and, and what we have over there in that country. The Chinese Basketball Association actually canceled a game between G League teams. Right. So there have been like already tangible. Sure tangible response and you can't watch rocket games on tv in uh china anymore as of uh a couple days ago because tencent pulled out basically people who they're offering a team switch option to uh people that subscribe to the rockets and and they can watch any other team as long as it's not the rocket so in effect they've been basically canceled they've been banned in the whole country of china 
Which is a huge deal. I mean, which is why I'm pretty sure you had Russell Westbrook and James Harden on, on camera the other day apologizing, which is also awkward that you have people apologizing for something they didn't say. You know, I'm sure they're not thrilled about the idea that they feel they have to apologize. But, you know, even aside from just the NBA itself, you've got, you know, the players, basically any superstar player in the world and the NBA has a market there. Uh, Kobe Bryant and Steph Curry still make annual appearances out there. And so the idea that being that, you know, Harden and Westbrook feel they have to apologize mostly because they don't want to lose business. Uh, it's really, to me, the first time they've really faced a battle between the league's values as it relates to this country and the idea of like how much money do we stand to lose if we take a certain stance on this. And I think that's what makes this so interesting. And, you know, some people are comparing it to some of the things the NFL has faced. I don't even know if it's that because I think that this is from a worldwide standpoint, it's different. People outside our country have an interest in this. The money thing that makes sense. But like that wasn't LeBron didn't worry about that when he put on an I can't breathe shirt. He wasn't worried about. So this other audience is an audience that we don't really understand that well. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the reaction that a lot of the fans in America had was. Like what was offensive? They use this word offensive about um, Daryl Morey's tweet that that the idea of supporting, um, you know, civil liberties and freedom of speech in Hong Kong, it seems such a natural thing for us as Americans to kind of be behind that. I think it even took a second to kind of calibrate like what are we dealing with here? Why would anyone even find that to be offensive? And then one thing to remember is that our perception of what's happening in Hong Kong is different from all of the people that were kind of in uproar about Daryl Morey's tweet from China, where because of state-owned TV, the protests are depicted in a very different way to them. And so when when they saw Daryl Morey kind of voicing his support, it was seen as being anti-China, anti-Beijing, and also uh, just sort of in support of violent protests, which is all that the media kind of shows them uh, of it. And it reminds us that, you know, we are in our own little kind of bubbles over here. I know it's kind of a trite thing to say, but like all of our experiences of political events and just everything happening in the world around us is filtered and mediated through the way in which we get our news and the way in which we see it. So people can have interpretations of the same event that are wildly different just depending on what they've been told about it. And this was like such a stark reminder of it. Somebody compared it to uh, a third rail, you know, like something that you don't touch in China where like we have a different view of it, I think. Completely. And, and I think the way you put it was probably spot on. Um, <laughs> we we have media outlets here in this country where they tend to show one side more than the other, not show the other side at all. And, you know, we can talk about echo chambers, but that that's kind of exactly what that is, where you're only hearing one argument, you're only seeing one set of things, and it shapes your worldview. And so when you imagine that, you know, that you're only getting one side of an argument or only the sides that a certain group of people or a government want you to see, you can better imagine why uh, people's views might differ from what Daryl Morey shared. Yeah, but you you also made a great point, Chris, about you know comparing this with what the NFL has kind of dealt with, and it really clicked for me. We did around when the the protest during the national anthem uh, was happening at the start of the 2017 season, and you know Kaepernick uh, being blackballed from the league. 
we did some research. Uh, we partnered with SurveyMonkey to kind of figure out each fan base's political leaning. And we also looked at data for basically among uh, seven sports. So the NBA, MLB, NHL, NFL, college basketball, college football, and NASCAR. Which ones correlated with support for Trump or uh, opposition to Trump on like a, uh, a, a media market based level. And what we found was the NFL, basically the correlation was completely non-existent. It was a flat line between – there was no apparent relationship between how popular or unpopular Trump was in an area and the support that football had. It was a universal mm-hmm. uh, sport basically uh, and it had the highest popularity of any of the sports as well, which I think – gives a lot of insight into why the NFL found itself in such a crisis because this is a, a sport that has tried to kind of play both sides against the middle and not offend anyone on either side. But when you have such a polarizing issue kind of come to the forefront, you have to take a side, even if you feel like you're not taking a side, it is supporting one side or the other, and you're alienating half your fan base. The NBA, by contrast, was the sport that had the most negative correlation between support for Trump and popularity of the sport. In other words, it was, not surprising, the the one with the biggest liberal uh, fan base and and support. So when somebody like LeBron or when Greg Popovich and, and some of the other outspoken players and coaches have spoken out against Trump, it does carry less of a risk, I think, uh, financially to them or in terms of popularity because they're sort of choir preaching. They, they're talking to a fan base and in some ways it builds the brand more than anything else. So I think this is unique for the NBA where they have a situation where they're – is a certain amount of risk financially to taking a political position and it was it was a little bit telling to see the the response be so different compared with some of the other things that maybe in America we find controversial but among NBA fans uh there's a there's a decided political viewpoint that actually agrees with a lot of them exactly and that's exactly the point i know there's always been a group of people that when i talk to them about the NBA. They're like, oh, I don't really like the NBA. And when I ask them why, and this is fine. Like people, you don't have to have a reason when someone asks you why don't you like the NBA. But like we're never really able to articulate a reason why. But it is a, a league where it, it's probably the blackest league of, of any of the leagues. It, and so, you know, the, the politics are a lot different. You have a lot of people that they make the most money of any of the major sports, too, it, it, on an annual basis. You know, you've the got players uh, have more control. There's so much more control. These guys can basically get their coaches fired if they feel strongly enough about it and they're good enough players. And so there are a lot of people that really don't like certain elements of that. And so. It is interesting that you're right. I, I think there is, again, so much – there can be so much of an echo chamber for the first time, really, in my opinion, the NBA has kind of touched that nerve, that that rail that we're talking about. And they got they, – they, they definitely got a little bit of a spark from it um, and, and some feedback from it because, again, the, the Chinese population is just so overwhelming and massive and growing. You know, I think is important to note too. I've talked to people that work for Tencent. You have the Lakers, you have the Warriors that have gotten to be a really big deal, and the Rockets. And the Rockets were kind of the first of those teams to really make a dent in the fan base in China because of Yao Ming. And um, the idea that he is now, I think, the chairman of the Chinese Basketball Association is really fascinating too. He's really angry, which, you know, is fascinating from like 
you know, on six different levels because of the fact that Yao has history with the team in question here and still is this angry about it. It's also really interesting to note, too, that, you know, as we've talked about the NBA trying to play both sides of the fence, one of the things I find most interesting about all this is that the statement that they put out after the Maury thing happened, that the one statement here basically says that, you know, it's clear, we want to make clear that Maury's statement didn't speak for the Rockets or the NBA. But then in the, <laughs> the statement they put out in Mandarin, basically said that they were extremely disappointed in what Maury said. And it's like, okay, that's literally playing both sides of the fence. (laughs) They want it to play well to the Chinese fans that they're backing away from this. You know, shame on you for having said this. But here they want to make it seem as if they stand for First Amendment rights. So it's 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 fascinating. You know, we've essentially seen Adam Silver kind of come down more firmly now since then. Uh, but they did not get the first statement right because they really literally did not say the same thing even in the first statement they put out, depending on who they were speaking to. So does this incident reveal that the image of the NBA as a politically progressive league was maybe always a little bit misleading, that it was maybe a little bit more for in in issues where it wasn't going to cost them anything? Or is it just more that we're realizing the limits of that progressive status? I think for any league, and I think the NBA is part of this too, it probably depends on what you have to lose. And I think that's probably what we've learned here. And Neil put it pretty eloquently a few minutes ago. For American politics, I think more often than not, it's pretty well established what all you can say without really risking alienating your fans because you already know who your fans are and you already know whether you're preaching to the choir, whether you're going to be pissing off people that already really support you and you know that you're going to disappoint fans who support you. And it's very rare that LeBron does that where he's really, really letting down his fans. You know, I can remember one pretty clear instance I remember when Tamir Rice was shot, when when LeBron didn't make a comment, because at that point, LeBron is playing in Cleveland. This incident happens in Cleveland, and LeBron didn't make a statement on it. He said he wanted to learn more about it first. And I remember seeing so many people on my timeline disappointed by the fact that he didn't take a really firm stance on that. So those are the sorts of things that disappoint someone, like because they're so used to LeBron speaking out about something that they know they feel strongly about, that they assume LeBron will feel strongly about as a black man. Those are the sorts of things that disappoint people because the the lines are kind of so well established as to what they feel like he normally would say. This is the first time that we're seeing something where the league is kind of being pushed out of its comfort zone to say something that may not be in line with their values. But also, if they don't say something more strongly and firmly than they normally would, that potentially goes outside their values, they risk losing a lot of money. And I I think most leagues would have an issue with with trying to figure out how they want to play that. It's just the first time that's happened for the NBA in quite a while. Yeah, and I think it's it's probably easier for the players, especially now, you know, this kind of LeBron generation to take stances politically than it was. Like I remember that Michael Jordan with the Republicans buy sneakers sure. too. Uh, quote that sort of mentality uh, has has kind of been phased out, uh, and I think the NBA has reaped benefits from how politically active and basically iconic. I mean, the, a lot of the the leading players in the league are doing a lot of good in their community and they are sort of they've transcended sports and they've become cultural figures and the league gets a lot of equity off of that you know uh and can kind of position themselves in a certain way but you know now when it comes to owners and and specifically the the league itself losing this thing that Adam Silver and even before him David Stern but especially under Silver they have spent 
a ton of time and money laying the groundwork to try to position themselves as the most popular sport in China specifically. Uh, and so I found it, like you said, Chris, it was so ironic and, and, and just, you know, the, the fact that it would be this sport having the issue with China and specifically the Rockets, given their history with Yao and their popularity. I remember times in which Yao and Tracy McGrady would like dominate all-star voting when they opened it up to uh, the Chinese <laughs> right, market right. because the, those were the games that were on television there because Yao was, was such a national hero. And so for it to kind of come back and be the Rockets of all teams that would uh, kind of run afoul of uh, the Chinese market is – just a, I don't know. It's I. I don't even know how to describe it. Is it a coincidence? Is it uh, is it something more than that? But um, I don't know. Maybe this this is probably an example of this idea of having a handle on who your fans are domestically has become a little bit easier, and and it uh, it's easier to kind of play to that politically in America. But as these leagues kind of seek to become more and more global, they're going to probably run into more and more issues like this just because they're out of their depth. Daryl Morey was totally out of his depth when he uh, put that that tweet out there and didn't understand the ramifications. I don't know that this would have been such a big issue had the tweet come from someone other than someone affiliated with the Rockets. Um, if it had been LeBron, sure. You know, if, it, if it's a huge figure of Steph, um, maybe – but but when you have someone that is in a leadership position with the team that is the most popular team there, I feel like it's kind of more fraught with those sorts of problems. So it yeah, is if it had been like an end of the bench role play yeah. or something, I don't think yeah, the, I don't the I don't think it would have been. So so it's it's one of those things where um, you know and, and honestly, like I said, I didn't take notice of it until I saw how swiftly Tillman Fertitta condemned it all and was still not really understanding why he came down so harshly because I was like you know is this the end of the relationship between Maury and the Rockets. And I still think that, you know, that may be a question. I, I haven't seen too many reports of it. I think the ringer kind of said something suggesting that they were giving thought to letting him go. Um, but honestly, I mean, that would be an interesting subject too. I mean, you know, and, and I think it would probably speak ill of the idea of free speech here. Well, right. Are we, are we disappointed that the NBA isn't just you know, supporting free speech, both among its employees and players, but also among Hong Kong activists like is that are we disappointed that they're choosing money over that value? you have a lot of people that are yeah. and uh and and even now that Adam Silver has come out and kind of essentially said look we we absolutely are okay and support you know okay with and support free speech a lot of people would just say it was kind of late to, in the game to say that or to say that that doesn't represent our views like what doesn't represent your views? The idea of free speech. So, <laughs> right, yeah. so it was it was kind of late in the game to say it, but it, again, I, I think it explains exactly what the issues were for the NBA is that the idea that like, shoot, we really botched this year, <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, kind of weren't apprised of how damaging this even something that simple could be for a relationship with that league and with that country, and and so that I mean it's it's it it is a really complicated thing for something that from our standpoint should not be complicated or should not seem complicated, but absolutely there are a lot of people that are disappointed from this country in the idea that you know in saying what they said that they kind of muddled the idea of whether or not we were okay with the idea of free speech. Well, this conversation won't end anytime soon, but thank you, Chris, for joining us to help us make sense of it. Sure, thanks for having me. Let's get a word from this week's other sponsor, LinkedIn. Neil, take it away. I'm happy to do the honor, Sarah. 
Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have, but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for so you can hire the right person and fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and connects you with candidates who match your business perfectly. That's how LinkedIn can make sure that your job post gets in front of the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. So it's no wonder that great candidates are hired every eight seconds on LinkedIn. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash pain. That's my name, P-A-I-N-E. Again, to get $50 off your first job post, let LinkedIn Jobs know that I sent you. I did this. Wow. I, I put you on the road to finding qualified candidates in a hurry. You can go to linkedin.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E. That's linkedin.com slash pain. Terms and conditions apply. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. Some even lead to tears. Oh, wait, those are just mine. We end. I was a nominal Twins fan this season. We can talk about that. Did you cry last night at the end of the game? Uh, Maybe. Okay. But it might have been out of sheer exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair point. Uh, We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, Neil and I are going to talk about a team I love so much, the Minnesota Twins, and their absolutely heartbreaking and completely ridiculous postseason losing streak. On Monday night, the New York Yankees completed a three-game sweep of the Twins. It was incredibly the Twins' 16th consecutive postseason loss. That tied them with the 1975-1979 Chicago Blackhawks for the longest playoff losing streak in MLB, NFL, NBA, or NHL history. If you look at their odds going into each game, according to our ELO model, Minnesota's chance of losing all 16 of those particular games in a row was (laughs) 0.00024%. That is 415,963. Wow. So like one and a half million. So good odds. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I I think that's a little misleading, though. Do you? Yeah. I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, I think, in fact, the Twins have been set up a setup. I absolutely agree, but maybe uh, for different reasons. <laughs> somebody was going to have to be in a position like this to lose, and Minnesota has all of the factors lining up in their disfavor. <laughs> nice. uh, so, for instance, that loss this week uh, made Minnesota the first 100-game winner to ever get swept in the division series. Uh, and before that, 100-game winners were 32 for 32 in not getting swept. So not in winning, but at least you know winning a game uh, before the Twins came along. And that includes the fellow 100-game uh, winners this season that didn't get swept. Sounds really bad. Cool. But it's also really unfair because even as... 101 game winners they had to face a team that won more games than them during the regular season in the Yankees uh, and that was just the second time in history going back to 1995 the start of the division series that that had happened the only other time was last year when the 100 win Yankees of all teams had to face the 108 win Red Sox and the Yankees lost that series which is generally what happens when you face a team that won more games and and is uh, probably better than you uh, and it turns out that this is kind of a theme for the Twins during this streak. So if you go back to 2002, when they snapped kind of a streak of not making the playoffs at all, they've played nine series or wildcard playoff games. And in 
all but one of those. So in eight, the opponent had more wins during the regular season than them. The only time that wasn't true was in 2006. They had 96 wins. The Oakland A's had 93. And yeah, the A's swept that series by definition. It's part of the streak. Uh, but most of the time, the Twins have been underdogs, often heavy underdogs, the second that they make the playoffs. And I think that's important because to have a streak like that, it's, it's a, it's an oddly backhanded streak. It sounds really bad. You've lost 16 straight playoff games. But on the other hand, you've made the playoffs enough to play 16 playoff games since 2004. That was the start of the streak. A lot of teams haven't made the playoffs that much uh, to even be in a position to lose that many consecutive playoff games. So you have to be good enough to make the playoffs with some frequency, but not good enough to really contend once you get there. And I think that's a sweet spot that maybe only the Twins are in. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I wrote a story about how unlucky the Tampa Bay Rays had been before this season in missing the playoffs because they would have these great records. They'd win 90 plus games and not make the playoffs because of how tough the AL East has been. Uh, the average record of winners in the AL East since 1998, uh, the last time MLB expanded, was 98.2 wins, which is the highest of any division. So it makes sense that the Rays would win a lot of games but, but not make the playoffs. Well, you can kind of flip that around for the Twins uh, because the AL Central has been the opposite. The average winner of that division has only had 93.6 wins since 98. That's the lowest average of any division in baseball uh, over that span. So somebody has to go to the playoffs out of that division, and the Twins have often been that team. They've won the division seven times in their eight playoff appearances. The only time they didn't win it was in 2017 when they went to the wildcard game. So they've had an advantage in that sense of making the postseason out of this winnable division compared with the other divisions. But then that just fuels the losing streak when you get to the playoffs. Like that, And that makes sense to me, though this year was not quite that because they yeah, obviously no, they won, won way more. Games. <laughs> they didn't like sneak in like they have in other times. That is true. Yes. Uh, and, and they outdueled their their bitter rival, the Cleveland Indians, who sort of took it for granted going into the mm-hmm. season that they would win it. And the Twins kind of took them by surprise and, and had this amazing season. But at the same time, there have been other Twins teams that won because the rest of the AL Central was deeply mediocre. And I would say, aside from the Indians, this year's AL Central was just a garbage heap, like a flaming dumpster fire. Uh, and, and you had, uh, we Sorry, talked about Royals, it. Royals, White Sox, and Tigers fans. <laughs> they know. They know. Uh, we talked about this. The, the Indians went 18 and 1 against the Tigers mm-hmm. this yep. season. Yep. Uh, so. That also happened in the West where. Yes, no, that that yeah, is so true. I'm just saying, it's um, not ju- like I'm just trying to defend. You're really the defending a the AL Central's bit. honor. <laughs> it's not always right terrible. Yeah, just, whatever. But you would agree, I would hope that that has played a factor in the Twins' ability to make the postseason, but then just sort of like instantly be underdogs once they make it. I agree with that. So if you go back to the ELO ratings, there are 10 teams that have made the playoffs at least eight times since the last expansion. The Yankees, the Braves, the Cardinals, Red Sox, Dodgers, A's, Astros, Cubs, Indians, and Twins. And of those teams, the one that has gone into the playoffs with easily the lowest average rating has been Minnesota. And the only team that's really close to them is the Cubs, which is weird because we think of the 2016 Cubs now, uh, you know, in the kind of dominant powerhouse that they were. There are a lot of like even the year that the the Bartman game happened, uh, we sort of in our mind paint this picture of them being favorites, but they 
I think only won 88 games that year. Yeah. Uh, they, they were not a, a dominant team. They had a long history being in the same, sort of the same position. Uh, I don't know what it is about the central divisions, uh, especially uh, in the in the 2000s. Uh, I think I know. It's money. Is what it <laughs> well, that's is. true. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, and, and and it's not like the the powerhouse AL East, you know, money battle between the the Yankees and the Red Sox. So yeah, the the Twins lowest rated team to go into the playoffs on average and only the Indians went into the playoffs in their first matchup against a tougher average opponent it was pretty close uh, and then those two teams are just way ahead of anyone else in terms of the the quality of the opponents they faced and so because of that the average margin between the twins pre-playoff elo and that of their opponents in their first round matchup uh it, the twins win in a landslide by by win i mean they have the, they're the <laughs> they heaviest <lose. laughs> underdogs uh and the the only team that made the playoffs at all uh since 1998 with a lower margin on average between their elo and their opponent going to the playoffs are the padres and they've made three postseason appearances and none in a long time. And they even, before the Dodgers decided to become Yankees West, like they've been uh, recently, they were, Padres were a good example of like a mediocre team in a weak division. I think an 82 win team or something won that division one year, which is unthinkable right now in 2019 baseball. Uh, but that was a thing that happened. So given all of that, we would expect, you know, We'd expect the Twins to win a game or two. I'm not excusing these sweeps, uh, which are fundamental to the losing streak. But I will say also that they've had this extreme misfortune of being put into this position as instant underdogs. Each of their last 10 postseason contests and 18 of their last 21, so the vast majority of the streak, has been against the Yankees. Specifically, the Yankees have won more games than any team this century. Uh, and so I think that those two teams are kind of inextricably linked when it comes to this streak because it just symbolizes everything that the Twins are kind of up against uh, and and the fact that they keep finding themselves in the situation. It makes sense. I mean, if you're, you know, the team that uh, oftentimes, not this year, but oftentimes you have the worst record of the, uh, of the division winners, uh, you know, you're going to go up against eventually one of these, uh, the team with the best record and, you know, sweeps happen in that. So I think, my overarching point is that somebody was going to find themselves in this situation and be set up at least for the possibility of postseason humiliation. And that team happens to have been the Twins. My question for you is, does this make you feel any better? Does it make you feel worse? Do you feel aggrieved by the the injustices of the universe? Or is this just this is part of baseball and you have to try to deal with it? Well, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel better really um you know i don't mind being the underdog i like being the underdog that's part of their brand to be honest and like that's kind of kind of a theme among teams that i that i root for so being in that position is not really the problem it's just that you would expect to win like a game something yeah not asking Um, for even a series 
Let's yeah, start yeah, yeah. baby steps. A game. Start with a game yeah, and yeah. then maybe build off that. Maybe maybe <laughs> lose three to two sure. in a division series. Yeah. That'd be progress. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I like being the underdog, but this is a little <laughs> bit ridiculous. Um, but I will say this terrible postseason streak does give me a little bit of hope. When the Twins make the playoffs again, which I have to assume will be next year, obviously, they have to beat those odds. Like, they have to win a game. Like, it's getting to the point where yeah, like, the odds are almost like, yeah. Although, although... It's a little bit of gambler's fallacy there. No, nope, we're going to go ahead and buy into that. You can't do anything about those games that have already happened. You can I know. only do things <laughs> tried. about the games going forward. You've tried to build a time machine, actually, to uh, Carlos Silva's start that- in 2006 or whenever it was. God. <laughs> that will do it for this week's show. Thanks from, so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Nate, and Chris, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. <laughs>